Welcome to this podcast from the October 26, 2009 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast is from the first session acknowledging the 20th anniversary of the Knight Commission. Panelists were asked to assess two decades of the Knight Commission's reform agenda. To what extent has it improved intercollegiate athletics for institutions and athletes? Is the NCAA and its current governance structure equipped to address the rising financial stakes and their implications? Knight Commission Co-Chairman R. Gerald Turner, President of Southern Methodist University, provides the introduction for this first session. The podcast runs approximately one hour and 20 minutes. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, visit www.knightcommission.org. All right, this first public session uh, is basically to assess two decades of the Knight Commission's reform agenda and explore the, the extent to which it has improved intercollegiate athletics for institutions and athletes, and also to look at how our institutions and the NCAA can address the rising financial stakes and the, impl uh, the implications of these financial stakes. As background, the Knight Commission was founded two decades ago in response to concerns that athletics abuses threaten the very integrity of higher education. The Commission took up the task of promoting a reform agenda for college sports, and in its 1991 report, Keeping the Faith with the Student-Athlete, the Commission laid out a one plus three roadmap for reform. Presidential control to bring about academic and physical integrity with accountability process to verify that integrity that uh, we now call certification. Over the years, the Commission has made very specific recommendations that have been detailed in your agenda. While reforms in governance and academics have been implemented over the past two decades, the rising financial stakes and escalating demands on athletes continue to present significant challenges and tensions within the collegiate model. Helping us today to, ex to uh, assess the success of reforms that have been implemented and discuss the broad approaches ahead are two individuals who've been national leaders in intercollegiate sports over the past several decades, as well as a scholar who has studied collegiate sports and its role in higher education since the Commission's founding. I'll introduce them in the order that they will make their remarks. We've asked them to make remarks of eight to 10 minutes and then uh, the Commission and the past Commission members uh, can feel free to join in the discussion. First is Cedric Dempsey. Ced served as the Executive Director, President of the NCAA from 1994 until 2002, after a long career as Director of Athletics at various institutions. During his leadership at the NCAA, the NCAA signed an 11-year, $6 billion contract with CBS Sports for its men's basketball tournament broadcast rights. Set has long been connected to intercollegiate athletics as a former student athlete, a nine-time letter winner in three different sports, football, basketball, and baseball, and head basketball coach and uh, director of athletics uh, at four institutions. And he has served on the Knight Commissions during its deliberations in 2000 and 2001. Said, glad to have you with us. Gene Smith. Associate Vice President and Director of Athletics, the Ohio State University. Gene Smith currently serves as the Associate Vice President and Director of Athletics at Ohio State University. He previously served as Director of Athletics at Arizona State, Iowa State, and Eastern Michigan, 
and is entering his 24th year in the athletic director's position. At Ohio State, he oversees one of the nation's largest and most successful ath collegiate athletic programs. The Buckeyes have 36 fully funded varsity sports and more than 1,000 student athletes. Gene's been involved in a number of leadership positions in intercollegiate athletics, including President, Division I-A Athletic Directors Association, incoming chair of the NCAA Men's Basketball Committee, and member of Division I Basketball, uh, member of Division I Basketball Academic Enhancement Group. He participated in football at Notre Dame, where he earned a bachelor's degree in business administration. So, Gene, glad to have you with us. The third is John Thielen, professor of educational policy studies, University of Kentucky. He's a professor of educational policy studies, a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Brown University, majored in history and was a varsity letter winner in wrestling. He earned his MA and PhDs from the University of California, Berkeley in educational history. And in 1990, he presented expert testimony to the Knight Foundation Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. He's the author of Games, Colleges, Play, and A History of American Higher Education, both published by Johns Hopkins University Press. And again, following these initial remarks, then we certainly uh, look forward to facilitating a discussion. And uh, said Dempsey, we'll start with you. Thank you, Gerald, and it's a pleasure and honor to be back with you. And when uh, Amy called me and asked me if uh, I would participate on this panel, I was very excited about seeing old friends again, and so I'm pleased to be with you. Uh, she didn't tell us at that time how long we had <clears throat> to talk, and I uh, developed my presentation and realized it was 25 minutes long, uh, and she says, you have eight minutes. And so I, I summarized for you in executive session the first 15 minutes of my, uh, of my speech. So uh, you will not have to listen to that. However, if uh, you've been handed out a sheet on, on somewhat of the historical facts of, of uh, what I would guess consider the modern period of intercollegiate sports. And I, I selected uh, 1951 to represent that, maybe for two reasons. One, that was when Walter Byers was hired as the first executive director of the NCAA and the association for the next 20 years. Uh, grew rapidly uh, and developed uh, its system as we basically know it today. Uh, the other reason I did that, that's when I started in intercollegiate athletics. So uh, I don't know if that's good or not, but I, uh, the other day I realized I'm in my 57th year of being involved as a player, as a coach, uh, athletic director, and having served the association. Um, so I will not uh, burden you with a lot of that history, but it, uh, as I put down that summary, I begin to think of my biblical phrase that says, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. If you look at the each decade, 70s, 80s, 90s, and I apologize for not doing more on the 2000s, I, I wanted to keep it to one page, and, and I know there were a lot of things which many of you know more about right now than probably I even know about. Uh, but we have dealt with all these issues every decade every decade, and we've made some progress. I think the NCAA has been a resilient organization, uh, and I think the most progress obviously was made beginning in 89 with the, with the development of the Knight Commission and its influence uh, in moving forward the academic criteria and the restructuring of, of the association. Uh, the, so the commission was a 
invaluable resource, I think, for the NCA as, as it moved through uh, through the 90 period. I, I was interested in uh, Cliff's comment earlier is uh, what can the Knight Commission do uh, with the financial integrity issues are moving forward. And so in the eight minutes I have, probably six and a half now, uh, I, would, I would like to address uh, that issue for you and give you some thoughts that I have that maybe make some of you uncomfortable. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I think are hopefully some some food for thought for um, how the, this body might uh, assist intercollegiate athletics in addressing financial issues. Um, identified four principles or philosophies, if you will, that uh, intercollegiate ha athletics has operated under uh, in modern times. And, and the uh, first philosophy, I guess I'd throw out, is a self-sufficient model uh, philosophy. That was adopted, in and I'm talking about Division I now. Uh, the um, uh, self-sufficient philosophy and principle was adopted in 1977-78 that institutions should be as financially self-sufficient as possible. Uh, what did that mean? Uh, and if I can use a personal experience to illustrate uh, the change in intercollegiate athletics in a modern period, it, uh, I, I'll take you back to my 15-year experience at different times at the University of Arizona. I was associate director in the middle 60s at the University of Arizona. Our major responsibility in terms of budget was to present an expense budget to the institution. Um, and uh, we were not held real responsible on revenue streams. Our responsibility was to make sure we lived within our budget. Uh, we were, in terms of facilities, we fell in line with all other academic units on the campus, and we are the priority of any in, improved facilities for intercollegiate sports were assessed in light of other needs of the campus. Our coaches taught our, and were paid basically the same as faculty. Uh, we were a department of intercollegiate sports and health, physical education, and recreation. It was the educational model that began to exist going all the way back to 1890 when the University of Chicago appointed a gentleman named Alonzo Stagg that many of you will remember as director of, of a Department of Physical Culture and Athletics. Uh, he was not called that, but he really was the first athletic director uh, in America. We all mostly think of him as a football coach that coached until he was 100 years old. I'm not exaggerating. He coached until he was 100 years old. Uh, so that was the model that I grew up in. I grew up in, in the educational model of intercollegiate sports. Uh, Fifteen years later, I returned to the University of Arizona as Director of Athletics. We're spanning now from about 1966 to 1982. I was told that we had a deficit of $450,000 and that we were expected to wipe that deficit out. I was told that if we wanted any new facilities, we had to generate our own income. Uh, 
and I was no longer a professor uh, in the Department of Health, Physical Education, Recreation that had been separated apart. So intercollegiate athletics had moved from an educational unit, the educational model that, that developed uh, sports in this country and higher education, to a, a big business model. And the 1977-78 self-sufficiency principle, if you will, uh, was sort of the uh, forerunner to, to moving forward to a, uh, a, the business model of inter, uh, intercollegiate sports. Uh, so my role changed dramatically, changed dramatically from what existed in 65 to what existed in 1982. My, my whole responsibility became much more business-oriented, and it reflected to me the business model that we have today. So self-sufficiency I want to talk a little bit more about, but more importantly, I think the next change from the educational model that we first developed in this country to today uh, is what's good for the whole philosophy versus self-interest principle. The latter is what exists in Division I today. Uh, it, it exists in, in, uh, in ways where I want to talk about very quickly with that. The third principle we'll talk about is a broad-based program philosophy. Intercollegiate athletics has, all, has been uh, used as a basic principle for, for decades, uh, a broad-based program, and most of the legislation is, is tied in to having broad-based programs uh, representing a, a Department of Intercollegiate Athletics. Uh, the, the last one is the level playing field philosophy. Uh, if you go through the, that 500-page manual of the NCAA, the vast majority of the legislative items in, in that manual deal, deal with trying to maintain a level playing field so there's a, a level competitive environment, if you will. I've already spoken, I, I think, enough about the self-sufficiency principle, but that, that is the principle upon which we basically operate intercollegiate sports uh, today. Uh, I'd like to spend uh, much of my time talking about what's good for the whole. What's good for the whole? Do we still believe that's the way we should be operating in intercollegiate sports? Division I does not operate that way. When we reorganized the association in the middle 90s, it, it very quickly identified a difference between the haves and the have-nots, the equitable schools, equity schools, I should say, control the NCAA over non-equity schools. They control it legislatively by vote. By vote, they control it. If you look the whole structure of committees, it's dominated by equity institutions. Uh, that, is, that is our uh, basic philosophy in Division I, whether we like it or not. If you agree with that, uh, I would suggest uh, that what we're going to have is that there will be many equity schools that will sustain itself, as the report comes out, but there will be many schools that will self-implode. And I, I remember a, a prominent commissioner having a discussion at one time, and he talked about what his responsibility is pretty much a self-interest uh, philosophy. That's the directive he's given by presidents. And I said, what about the other people that need help? And the comment was, well, they will self-implode. 
and I think that's probably true. And that's where we are today when you look at the report of what presidents see, uh, is that they will not be able to exist. So, Cliff, I, I guess I want to answer your question that you raised in, in the last session, uh, and that is, what can this Knight Commission do uh, to um, be of any assistance in, in the financial area? And I think one is look at these principles. Uh, and the basic philosophy under which we are currently operating and, and determine whether or not you could identify what are the principles that we should be operating under. If, if we are com uh, complacent or we are accepting of the self-interest model, then that should be stated up front. That sh really should be stated up front, that that's what we are all about. Uh, if you believe uh, that we should be concerned about what's good for the whole, I would recommend at least three things that would take place. Uh, one is that there'd be equated voting within the membership. That's one way that, that everyone has a voice uh, and that uh, uh, there's developed some balance out of that in terms of what's, effort, what's good for the whole. Presently, what it comes out of Division One is basically for the equity institutions. Uh, I would suggest that there could be a different revenue sharing model that will, I'm sure, go over very pop with great popularity. Um, and I would raise a question: If you believe in that, what is the purpose of the BCS? What is the purpose of the BCS if you believe in what's good for the whole? Uh, it, it is a uh, program that, that, as you see, was formed uh, with the five conferences uh, and Notre Dame uh, to certainly protect uh, their self-interest, and I understand that. Uh, and it provided a great avenue of uh, revenue streams for those schools. But is, is it good for the whole of football in this country? Uh, coming from a state that has dropped in the last two and a half decades, over 26 schools have dropped football. And if you think that, uh, that the term of can they sustain, we're, we're, we've already seen that in that state. It cannot sustain uh, certain programs, and, and it will not sustain that. And I suspect, uh, sus uh, would uh, speculate that if we cannot uh, change our model, that we will see more and more programs not just drop football, but possibly ch uh, change their whole uh, intercollegiate athletic programs. Broad-based program principle, uh, is it still appropriate? Uh, I question that any longer, whether or not uh, we can have broad-based programs under the, uh, particularly the model of self-interest uh, moving forward. Uh, there may be some areas related to uh, redefining the broad-based program that certainly could have cost reduction benefits to it. Uh, one that I've played with for some time that I think ought to be looked at, and uh, I guess I got that from the USOC model, is whether sports ought to, ought to be federated, that we really work under a federation of sports rather than by institution, and let, let institutions work, uh, define what they want to do by, on a sport basis and not on the broad-based program basis. Um, the level playing 
uh, field philosophy, uh, if we're going to maintain the self-interest uh, philosophy and theory, I would suggest that we look at deregulating much of our level playing uh, legislation, level playing field legislation, because it, it no longer is appropriate. It's very cumbersome uh, for the membership to follow. I uh, was one of my biggest disappointments within the NCA was when we had a package of deregulating our our rules and regulations and despite all the complaints that membership has regarding rules and regulations they did not want to regula uh, deregulate uh, if we're going to maintain our current system uh, I would again recommend that we look at deregulating our system which again could uh, reduce I, I think expenses as it relates to the financial area I wanted to cover those things quickly, and hopefully they stimulated a little bit of thought that uh, we'll raise some questions uh, when we get into the open sessions. And I guess I'll turn this over to James. Yes. To, to mm -hmm. Thank you, Seth. Let me, uh, first of all, on behalf of all of the student athletes that we serve every day and the athletic administrators who are blessed to work in intercollegiate athletics, uh, thank you for your hard work. Uh, and also congratulations on your 20th anniversary. The work that you did, in my view, has significant impact on our institutions and obviously our athletic programs. All the different pieces of legislation that emerged everywhere from initial eligibility, progress towards degree, degree requirements, GPA, SGSR, APR, all the acronyms, uh, you did a one heck of a job in making us look in the mirror. So thank you. Uh, our graduation rates are uh, moving up. African-American graduation rates are moving up faster than any other demographic. And you can be uh, very, very fortunate to be in a situation where you guys actually made a change. So thank you. I think Seth nailed it. He nailed it right on. And I agree with him wholeheartedly. The financial challenge we face uh, is very difficult. We have 339 institutions, and as you all know, they have diverse mission, diverse missions, diverse values, uh, diverse beliefs in intercollegiate athletics. The haves and the have-nots are a result of a long history and tradition and local decisions. Local decisions by trustees or regents, local decisions by presidents, local decisions basically by some cases, in some cases, geography and marketplace. Said nailed it when athletic directors were turned into entrepreneurs when he returned as an athletic director. It took our enterprise in another direction. No longer were we just presenting expenses. We were charged with generating revenue. And in many cases in that, at that time, there were no controls on that entrepreneurial spirit. And it moved. It moved fast. And that has not stopped. Most of your ADs see themselves as businessmen, middle managers in higher education who periodically move into a leadership role, but a lot of time move back to middle managers and become entrepreneurs and finding any possible way to generate another dollar. That is the world we live in. I have been blessed to be at four institutions that are markedly different in that regard. Eastern Michigan University in Ypsilanti in the shadow of Michigan State in Michigan. 15 minutes to Michigan, 40 minutes to Michigan State. Iowa State University in a state at that particular time that only had 1.2 million people in a town that only had 25,000 people. 
So it really challenged my entrepreneurial skills. I love the corn. But I, in Arizona State University, basically an undone institution, a new institution, an environment where every single pro sport existed and every single recreation existed. 200 golf courses, so the entertainment dollar was stretched. So again, the entrepreneurial skills were challenged. And I am blessed to be at the Ohio, the Ohio State University where Buckeye Nation affords us opportunities uh, for our student athletes that is like very few institutions. All different, distinctly different, all different missions, all different values. But I was blessed at each institution to have strong presidents. The best thing that you did, besides the academics, was put intercollegiate athletics in the hands of the presidents. Where we are now is going to be, require strong presidential leadership. There's no other group that can do it. The governance structure cannot deal with the issues that we're dealing with today. There's no way. At the end of the day, what Miles Brand did, God bless him and his leadership, was take the bureaucratic system and find ways to move things through. He created two task forces on academic enhancement, one in baseball, one in basketball, along obviously with the board of directors' uh, blessing. And those task force forces moved things faster than our NCA bureaucracy can frankly move. I believe that's the model. Dutch Bachman, the executive director of Division IA Athletic Directors Association, will make a presentation this today in the next panel. Some things that I agree with and many of my colleagues agree with that aren't systemic changes, but they're helpful changes. I will give you one example. He will talk about playing and practice seasons. And this is a time demand issue that we need to get our hands around. It's not about cutting competitions to save dollars. It's about time demand. An example, we bring into campus our men's and women's soccer programs early because of the definition of the championship date. We bring them in before school starts. So we're paying those expenditures, not just room and meal, but they're practicing. So we're paying event management. We're paying athletic trainers to be on site. Just think about it. At the Ohio State University, we're blessed to have 36 sports, and sometimes I think it's a curse, but at the end of the day, it's a, it's a blessing. The reality is we bring in men's and women's cross country early. And even when we move to semester systems, the same will occur. We'll bring in men's and women's cross country early and play per diems and so on and so forth. Think about it, cross country. Where have we come? The reality is we spend dollars in order to be highly competitive. In 1994, the Director's Cup was created, the old Sears Director's Cup. Now it's the Learfield Director's Cup. It too was a, a significant moment in time in our business because we, be, as ADs, as entrepreneurs, we became judged by our success in the measurement of the Director's Cup. So we talk about football coaches' salaries, we talk about basketball coaches' salaries. The salaries in many of our Olympic sports have tripled since 1994. Look at it, study it, have tripled in the pursuit of beating Stanford and winning the Director's Cup. Our budgets have swelled 
in an effort to win the Director's Cup because we're competitive environments. In fact, some of our ADs have incentive clauses based upon their performance in the Director's Cup. Think about it. So what Dutch will present today, uh, I believe, are changes that are not significant changes, and some people will view them as nibbling at the edges. But I will tell you that if we do them all, if we look at the personnel, if we look at the playing and practice seasons and the other things that he will talk to you about, you just can't do one or two, you need to do them all. And at the end of the day, you will save significant dollars. It is not a sea change in our programs like Seth is talking about. I agree with everything he said. I'm just giving you something on the ground floor to think about when Dutch presents his case, presents uh, his recommendations. I think something cannot be lost as all of us go through this challenge. The educational opportunities we provide for people in, who participate and compete in sport is special. I'm biased. I am a product out of Cleveland, Ohio. Had it not been for football, I would have not even thought about a four-year institution. I'd still be working in Cleveland, which is fine with me. But the reality is football gave me an opportunity to be the first one in my family to think about a four-year degree and ultimately achieve that. So sport is dear to me, very dear to me. At the University of Notre Dame, I was blessed to have an athletic director by the name of Moose Krause. And he came and spoke to our team in a situation where he thought things were being lost a little bit. He gave a speech and i never forget it. They subsequently printed that speech. He said, only in preparing oneself laboriously and steadily through long hours of concentration, heat, weariness, and frustration. Can one be prepared to take advantage of the opportunities when they present themselves? It takes stamina and hardiness to challenge the fates, to risk everything in competition and face again in the end the specter of public embarrassment until it no longer paralyzes you. It's here with a game of its life. I submit to you that that's what we're blessed to create in our athletic programs, those teachable moments. So as we deliberate and talk about reductions and redirections, I would hope that all of us would keep at the forefront of our minds the valuable quality educational experience that intercollegiate, athletic, intercollegiate athletics provides. If we think about reducing membership in the FBS from 16 to 12, from 16 to 10, there will be those of us who won't be supportive because of that, because we believe in what sports offer our student, our student athletes. There will be those obviously who will support it for financial reasons. I just believe there's other ways besides finding ways that ultimately eliminate opportunities. So thank you for listening. Hopefully what I've said is helpful. Thank you. And our third speaker, uh, we'll move directly to him, John Thielen. Thanks for the kind introduction. Uh, introduced two leaders and one scholar. Being introduced mm -hmm. as a scholar with this group reminds me a little bit of high school dating in an earlier era when uh, you were praised as having a good personality. Um, I started I to introduce you as three great athletes, but I didn't know. <laughs> at, the time, at the time that I gave my uh, testimony to the first hearings of the night, Commission. Uh, I also was president of the Faculty Senate at the College of William and Mary. 
and was liaison to the Board of Visitors. Prior to that, I had worked in federal uh, and state legislation for California's independent colleges and universities and a variety of other administrative uh, campus roles. So I hope that scholarship is grounded in uh, sound observation and experience in a variety of higher education roles. I think back to the hearings in Washington, DC, uh, it was intimidating. Uh, we had to wait in line. I, I think we were under Napoleonic law. Uh, we were uh, guilty until proven innocent uh, with our data and reports. I had some time uh, to kill uh, before I was called to give my testimony, and I was standing next to Sonny Vaccaro, who at that time was with Nike. I, I tried hastily to negotiate a shoe endorsement deal, some, something called the Little Professor, a tasteful legion. Uh, he said he would get back to me. Well, then I faced uh, Clifton Wharton. I recognized him because in the annual reports from TIA-CREF, there was his picture. And I, I felt, ah, here's, here's someone who cares about my future. In fact, he grilled me, uh, reasonably so, uh, about my uh, data. I had co-authored uh, a monograph called Fiscal Fitness, question mark. And I had the audacity uh, in 1989 to project that many big-time intercollegiate athletic programs would face financial problems. Sports writers jeered at me. Uh, Dr. Wharton was skeptical but eventually came around, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that my projections have been reasonably accurate. I also, by the way, have a copy of the original proceedings of the Knight Commission. I, I trust that everyone has one at home and office. It was good reading then, it's good reading now. Here's what I see as some of the changes. Uh, first of all, I see myself as something like a cicada. I come back to the Knight Commission about every 17 or 18 years uh, with a gentle humming noise. First, I see uh, improved writing about intercollegiate athletics. I have in mind the first-rate journalism uh, of Malcolm Moran, uh, Welsh Suggs, who I believe here today, and also uh, I think of like Doug, uh, Doug Letterman, uh, who was at one time at the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, and then became founder of Inside Higher Ed. Uh, and in, in recent years, uh, Brad Wolverton and Libby Sander of the Chronicle of Higher Education. These are writers who have not only uh, reported uh, on news, they've taken the lead in finding some really significant stories. If you do not read those publications and those authors, I hope you will. I'm in their debt. In fact, I think what they did was they moved college sports from the sports page, not only to the front page, but to the op-ed page. It would be difficult today to imagine a significant discussion of higher education without including intercollegiate athletics. Such was not the case 30 years ago. Along with this improved journalism and writing, there's also been remarkable improvement in the research about intercollegiate athletics. Um, I think, for example, of economists such as uh, Andrew Zimbalist, uh, and also uh, pertinent to uh, this group are some of our former presidents of universities, such as Bill Bowen, uh, uh, who uh, left Princeton's presidency to become president of the Mellon Foundation. Uh, and they've showed how systematic research relying on large databases can help us explore significant questions about trends and character of intercollegiate athletic program. There's another forgotten figure, a former president uh, named Bob Atwell, 
who had been president of Pitzer College, uh, one of the Claremont colleges in California. I think he took the lead in the mid-1980s uh, as a vice president of the American Council on Education. He wrote a monograph called The Money Game. Uh, once again, it still holds up after, after many decades. Another president, uh, Jay Oliva of New York University, wrote a wonderful readable pamphlet called What Trustees Should Know About Inter Intercollegiate Athletics Program. Once again, the, there was, uh, I think, good information out there, not only from scholars, but also uh, from presidents. Now, the, the, the paradox is that as our writing and research improves, I, I don't necessarily think that uh, uh, writing and research shape reform. Uh, so there is uh, a disappointment that uh, these promising developments that we know more and with more substance about what's going on in intercollegiate athletics, uh, the connection with policies and practices remains uh, disparate. Another big change, I think, between the late 1980s and today is not only in Title IX, but in the way that Title IX has been viewed. I always felt that a number of colleges and universities uh, missed the boat uh, in the 1980s when Title IX was loosely and liberally enforced. I think, for example, the in infamous case where Colgate University created a women's hockey team, uh, didn't give them uniforms, did give them uh, rink time at 3 in the morning, uh, no allowances for travel, uh, no allowances for meals. Little wonder, then, that cases such as that make their way into the court system. So I think that universities and their presidents and athletic directors uh, must take some responsibility for the proliferation of litigation and regulations that have shaped uh, subsequent explorations of Title IX. And I hold my own, own alma mater, Brown University, uh, in this company with their 1997 case that went to the Supreme Court. Um, a few years ago, an economist at Princeton uh, won the Nobel Prize. Oh, by the way, he was also, I think, a hockey player at Princeton. Uh, won the Nobel Prize for looking at decision behavior in tough situations. One way that that has been uh, interpreted is that it was, how is it that smart people do dumb things? And uh, I would have to include some of those colleges uh, and their presidents in that uh, company. For example, I was on the all unpowerful athletic policy advisory committee at the College of William and Mary. And we distinctly advised the president, who was an attorney, that he should not, he should not cut women's basketball. Well, advisory committees, they, they don't carry much binding power. He cut women's sports, uh, he cut basketball for women, he cut uh, men's swimming, cut wrestling, and uh, he lost. Uh, women's basketball was reinstated, and rightfully so, the coach of the women's team tripled her salary. Meanwhile, the men's sports remain cut. So presidents do make a difference, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. A few weeks ago, no, last year, uh, a member of the University of Kentucky Athletics Association board commented that it was a good thing that a university consider having a jet uh, for their use for uh, athletic recruiting. And he said, for example, uh, from his own experience, he had been sitting in the Atlanta airport between flights on commercial flights, and boy, it was really a nuisance. And you know, you could miss uh, making that contact with a recruit. Perhaps, 
I was sitting in the Atlanta airport yesterday. I had a great time because I was able to peruse in the bookstore, in one of those buyback books. And I picked up, I love autobiographies of self-made industrialists. A guy can dream. Let me read to you a quote that I, that I read yesterday. The university's executive director of development and major gifts says that athletics is the front porch of the university, echoing a theme we heard about this morning. That's how you advertise nationally as well as internationally. Right or wrong or indifferent, you don't see the science bowl on ABC. You see the cotton bowl and the final four. The industrialist modestly went on to say, you don't get 50,000 people to go to a stadium to listen to a history professor. That doesn't grab the attention of the masses. Football is big business in America, and a school with a competitive college football program will attract more students, which attracts better teachers, and in turn leads to academic greatness. We're building the best facilities in America for college sports. I want a great university, and a competitive sports program is a way to get there. Fair enough. How would you test out that claim? I'd say for most of our big-time athletic program universities, probably it's membership in the Association of American Universities. That's the end game in the research universities. I doubt that that's a very good formula for getting into the AAU. But we shall see. Um, by the way, I also disagree a little bit that uh, some of you may remember GE's College Bowl in the late 1950s and early 1960s, which had the top rating on Sunday nights. We had varsity scholars having, uh, competing with toss-up questions and whatever. So maybe academics can have a place on television. So, so what, what bothers me is that uh, in the discussions of the uh, future of intercollegiate athletics, I try to ground it and connect it to the overall future of higher education. Last week, the Chronicle of Higher Education published my op-ed piece about uh, the future of funding for state flagship universities. Uh, I did not deal specifically with athletics, but I had a few points that, that overlapped. Um, usually, university presidents, particularly our public universities, complain that uh, support from their states has tapered uh, or dropped. Perhaps so. I'm more concerned about that we really don't know where money goes once it comes in to most universities. Uh, I have suggested that uh, one, one way to at least partially uh, uh, free up monies within cash-strapped universities is to uh, charge fair uh, market value rent to athletic associations on the land that they use on their campus. They're self-supporting? Well, okay, let's pay up. Another thing is that uh, athletic associations often charge many entities to use their logo. Well, that's distinguished from the university logo. I would say to the host university, charge the athletic association. Fair, fair about is turn play. Turnabout is fair play. Um, for example, it is not the athletic association. It is the university that belongs to the NCAA. So I think there are a number of uh, short-term internal uh, partial correctives, but I do think that we're venturing into uh, a period that uh, goes far beyond uh, the crises of inter intercollegiate athletics. I see it as uh, a brave uh, new world and uh, cautious world for higher education. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, we have uh, time now for questions from commission members and, uh, and uh, current and past members. Any questions to start us? 
I might uh, mention one of the things that we've uh, have said, of course, is that such a very few number of uh, intercollegiate programs break even now. So how are you going to be able, how is your recommendation going to help address sort of the arms race or the increased need of uh, schools uh, to meet their athletic expenses if lease charges and things like that are, are made? Do you make that recommendation with any vision or understanding or, or, or projection toward the current uh, crisis of such a small number of departments now meeting their currently charged expenses? John, Thielen. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, economist Andrew Zimbalist, uh, a few years ago in his book on unpaid professionals, uh, brought to the fore a really good analysis of what he called the market forces in college sports. This is always invoked as the rationale as to why coaches demand a higher salary and whatever. Uh, what, I, what I think is going to happen, and I fear, is that if you leave to market forces, which many athletic departments have, have suggested, uh, that the, the cleavage between the haves and the have-nots, even at the higher levels, is simply going to uh, increase. And um, I think what's going to happen is that the university presidents and their boards are going to have to rethink the way in which budgeting decisions are made within the entire university. And so that uh, as a, an antidote to the escalation, it might involve bringing uh, the athletic directors into the budgeting process along with provosts, deans, vice presidents, the med center, and whatever. Janet? Um, I wanted to uh, elaborate a little bit and maybe think outside the box on the business of different revenue sharing models. What kind of ideas are you suggesting here? You made a broad statement there, and um, I'm thinking of some. <laughs> but I'd like to hear your thoughts. Well, uh, if you look at um, how dollars are are shared currently, in particular in the within the NCAA, uh, the BCS is slightly different, but uh, it is based strictly upon winning. Uh, now there is greater sharing. I, I think the new program that has been developed, it, it, there's greater sharing uh, based upon performance, but that goes across the conferences and where they get so many points and uh, how much money they get out of it. Uh, more equal sharing, I think, would be necessary in that, which is not a very popular approach, certainly. But uh, it, it seems to me if we are concerned whether we're going to survive, and I can remember in the 80s, uh, the common thread of thinking was we have 120 schools in Division 1A now that will soon be at 60 that will be supporting and it will soon be at 30. I was struck by the latest data that came out were about 30 right now of schools. There's a, there's a huge separation uh, between that top 30 to 40 schools and the other schools, which lends itself to another concept, I think, of, uh, of subdividing that, that division. Maybe there ought to be, the division should be based upon budget amounts as much as anything. Uh, and because the other, the bottom tier will, uh, will not be able to sustain itself as, as it currently exists. 
All right, Jerry, first. Uh, yeah, I want to follow up with a question for you said also. Uh, I find intriguing this split between self-interest and good for the whole types of philosophy. And um, it seems to me that, that clearly the self-interest model has been what schools, universities have been pursuing in this field. Uh, I'm wondering uh, what would have to happen uh, to change uh, the basic mentality and the basic values of, of our various uh, leaders to embrace the, the uh, you know, sort of the whole, good for the whole type of philosophy. Because this is a value shift. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a philosophy shift. It's a, it's a shift in what you think is important. And, um, and right now, people are embedded in this one. What's, what would have to happen to them mentally? And how could we motivate that? How could we precipitate that? Well, I, I think uh, there were a lot of good things that came out of the restructuring in 95, 96. Uh, I think one of the weaknesses that came out of it was the loss of ownership by the large athletic community itself in the NCAA. Uh, I think the presidential leadership has been a very positive part of that, but I think it could have been accomplished in a different way than, than it was. Uh, uh, the two divisions that have prospered greatly from the Federation uh, model that we established, the Division Two and Division Three, The presidents still provide leadership. Uh, division two, and I said this at the beginning, would probably benefit more than any other division out of the new structure, and I think they have. They develop an identification that's been very valuable to them. Uh, they come together uh, across the country, and the biggest complaint I heard toward the tail end of, of my tenure at the NCAA was people in athletics felt no ownership within the NCAA. We certainly have diminished the role of faculty representatives. Uh, they basically have no role. And ironically, if you look at the history of intercollegiate sports, uh, presidents at times were in and out in the early periods, and I'm talking about the 1900s, the early 1900s, in and out of leadership role. But they very quickly moved uh, the control of athletics under the faculty. And, and despite what the Chronicle of Education has said and some presidents have said, athletic directors did not control athletics during that period of time. I never felt that I had control of what the university athletic program was. And uh, it was controlled by faculty. If you look at the history of the NCAA, presidents that were voluntary presidents during that period of time, most of them were faculty reps. The people that voted on the floor were faculty reps. So the, the group that is totally left out of the new system has been the faculty reps. Uh, the Division Two and Three system still has an opportunity to interact. And I, I think one way to bring that back together is uh, uh, as you have broad constituent groups talking with each other, you find some balance in, in between where we are right now and where we're, even where, where we were before. A lot of people don't like that because it's a very democratic voting process that, that occurs in Division Two and Three. But I think they've made remarkable advancements in, in terms of what their philosophy is, what they're trying to accomplish in those two divisions. Uh, and uh, it, it seems to me we've made good progress in, in many areas in the new structure of Division One. But one thing that we've lost is that national interaction of communication. It's basically conference communication now. And uh, I think that's, that's been one of the 
vast weaknesses of the current structure. So I okay, guess well, getting, getting at your point, uh, it, it seems to me we need to look at a structure that, that permits more transparency and communication across the board. We've got several people that wanted to ask a question, Lynn and Jack and uh, Andrea and Anita and Elson. And so let's start with, <laughs> so all that means is the questions need to be, uh, the answers and questions need to be shorter, yeah. <laughs> How about, how about a question and comment? I'll keep it that way. Um, uh, let, me, let me go back to the, um, the idea of sustain, sustainability, and particularly in the presidential survey that we have in front of us, uh, it, it's been stated coaches' salaries are seen as the greatest impediment to sustainability. And if that is the case, and they're subject to, they're subject to market forces, as other people have said, uh, you know, I'm very curious, uh, and Gene might ask you, because obviously you are um, currently a, an athletic director at you know, one of the largest institutions. I mean, what, what's the evaluative me metric for hiring a coach? I mean, what goes into the decision making? And, and then, you know, I may, depending on what you say, have a comment. <laughs> well, it's, uh, well, you know the answer. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, uh, again, this goes back to, you know, decisions are made locally based upon the environment you're in and based upon your mission and what you want to achieve. Uh, and obviously, um, at the Ohio State University and schools like us, who are fortunate and blessed to generate significant revenue, uh, we feel that the investment that we have in, in those leaders and those subsidiaries is small. Uh, you look at our coaches paid $3.7 million. The greatest thing about it is that we control all those dollars. They're not outside. There's no booster group. There's no deal on the side that, that we don't control, which is a, a great shift in our business, although that exists some places is not as strong as it used to be in a lot of places. Um, <clears throat> so we, we obviously look at nationally what other coaches are paid, and we plug our number based upon that and what our goals are. But, but going back to understanding who this person is that you're bringing in, what, what are your expectations? Oh, yeah. My, uh, <clears throat> I probably, you know, in, I was in, on. In priority order. Yeah, first of all, integrity. I mean, you, as you know, you have or you don't, you wear it on your sleeve. Integrity is, is the number one thing. Uh, values, uh, if their values are aligned with the institution uh, beyond integrity value. I'm looking for a teacher, someone that ultimately understands that we're trying to create a quality educational experience, that we're not just trying to win ball games. And it's my job as athletic director, and I was in the situation last week when we lost to Purdue, to protect our program, protect our coach, because at the end of the day, he's teaching. He's trying to help these young men grow up. So at the, I look for those things. I look for a commitment to community. I look for a commitment to being integrated within the, within the institution. I'm looking for a person who understands uh, too much who is, whom is given, much is expected. And as long as they share those things, uh, and obviously a lot of other things that are more mundane, at, at the end of the day, those are the high-level things I look for. But the only thing that I would say, it seems to be somewhat incongruent because, he, you know, you talk, and, and I'm not saying you personally, and I'm sure there are other athletics directors who will say the same thing. You talk about, from a priority standpoint, integrity or running a clean program, if you will. Right. Development of, of the, the student athlete, maybe graduation rates, and then maybe wins and losses. But yet, you say you plug into what people are being paid across the country right. and say that that is the, the standard by which you, know, you start the salary. And not everybody has that same 
um, that, that same commitment to those priorities. So, you know, you can't plug in a salary to people who don't have the same values uh, with right. regard to who you want and say, okay, we're going to pay you this, but we're going to measure you differently. And I would say that, you know, to, as far as market forces, market forces dictate coaching salaries. I would say that, you know, in this society, you know, market forces haven't always doomed our society. I mean, market forces have been changed by innovation, by creativity. They've been changed by discipline, courage of conviction. And many of these things result in success, which redefine the, the, the meaning of success. Mm -hmm. And I would say that what you're talking about right now has that capability if others, if others were to follow. So from that standpoint, you know, I think that plugging in to what other people are being paid across the country, but having a different value. You can find great coaches that aren't necessarily going to earn and, and be worth $6.8 million a year. That's probably true. There's no and, doubt and about it. And you've got coaches yeah. who, right. and, and you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about anybody specifically, but that's a whole other story. Well, I'm sure you have a few that are specific, as so, I right. do. But, but <laughs> the, point being, the point being is that I, I think that these market forces certainly can be changed. And, you know, the more the ideas that you just spoke of are proliferated, the, the easier it's going to be for, you, you know, your brethren among athletics directors to make that change. Because I, I truly believe each individual believes that that has to be the mission, development, um, running a clean program, and then maybe wins and losses. And I think the first two ultimately lead to the third. That's exactly right. Everything that I listed leads to winning. If you don't do those things, you have no foundation, no fabric, you won't ultimately win. Andrea and then Jack. I have a, a question and then I'll, I'll, I'll make the statement just because it follows off of what Len says. And, and I also believe that market forces can change. And I think um, uh, they will change, but Gene, it gets to what you said. And the reason they'll change is because all decisions are local. And right. the community and the environment has an impact on those decisions. And eventually, if this issue becomes becomes a cause that needs to be dealt with, it will get dealt with at the local levels. Uh, but my question is a little different. Again, back to market <coughs> forces, though. Why would it be bad if a university that can't sustain sports were to lose sports? Why is it we talk about equalizing everybody and we don't talk about the fact that it may not make sense for every institution to be in athletics? Maybe you address that, too. Um, I, it, it's Any of them? Yeah. Said. Well, I just said, we get back to what value do you think intercollegiate sports has on the on a campus? Uh, and uh, I guess some campuses, though, have just done just fine without without football, without basketball, without the expensive intercollegiate athletics. And when we yeah. sit here and we talk about it, we talk about everybody having to have these things. Some are the haves and some are the have-nots. We, we, and, we, and then we tell ourselves that we're talking about student-athletes and whatnot. What we're really talking about is academics, academic institutions that have sports, that sports add to the value of the institution. But that doesn't mean the institution wouldn't be any better or worse without the athletics. Well, I, I, and I don't disagree with what you said there. I, I do think that uh, one of the problems that many people get involved in sports is for the wrong reasons. I mean, they, they, they're looking at it for visibility to, to be seen in the same light as a sister institution. They're not looking at it as to what is in the best interest of their campus or in the best interest of, uh, of the student body. Uh, it would seem to me that, and one of the other things that have bothered me regarding the mention of the 
number of schools that have dropped football is you could play football at a different level. If you believe in the sport, you could play at a different level. Or and may, maybe, maybe the... What's that? Or not at all. Or not at all. Some okay. schools have, have done very well uh, not having football. I think it depends. On, that's an institutional level of the impact. And we already heard here today from the report that uh, the presidents responded to. They felt, it's, is it the front door of the institution? Does it provide other opportunities for people to come together? All, all those side effects, if you will, community outreach programs, uh, what value is that? There, there's certainly no doubt that on many campuses, is it does not have that kind of value. It does not have that value. And, and, the, and there is a positive probably of self-imploding and uh, the fact that it may bring people back to a reality of being where they, they should be uh, in terms of their athletic program. Jack? Uh, again, a question for Sed. Um, how, how do you see a federation model unfolding and how do you balance federation with the coherence and the development of a conference? Well, I, I think it's tied into a, uh, of not necessarily requiring, requiring a broad-based program concept anymore. And uh, one of the problems we've tried to do, we've, we've taken the, the two major revenue stream sports and kind of set them aside and related to certain legislation. On the other hand, many schools find ice hockey wrestling some of those programs as good revenue producing opportunities for them but but they're hampered i, I think in some ways uh, because of overall writing legislation uh, on, on across the board broad-based concept whereas i think if you uh, federated them uh, you, it might be easier to uh, to allow that kind of flexibility within an institutional program to highlight some programs, to have other programs at a different level uh, may have some, some benefit to it. Anita, then Allison. Thank you. Uh, not only because of the temperature of this room, but the, <laughs> the statement that uh, Olympic sports um, are sort of the, um, Yes, the uh, reason that you have to you get rid of those and you keep the other sports, which obviously is an overstatement. But the notion that the value of sport is related only to the so-called money sports is a, a troubling concept. And I, so I'm glad you're shaking your head no. no but that, that seems to be most of it. And in these reports, you see nothing but discussion about the two sports. And as you just ex explained, one of, you can have other sports that can be revenue and to me, the question of, of what you need to do is your, your student base. You have a duty to the students to be able to allow them to have the experiences that sport can bring to a college education. We're the only system in the world that so ties education and sport together. And we're the only system in the world that has the kind of um, reunion capabilities and the notion of being an alum and supporting your, your, your school. So I hope that we cannot forget the intrinsic value of sports to the educational purposes. And uh, don't kill the Olympic movement. Oh, I would totally I agree with you on that, Anita. But uh, the federated concept, I think uh, you might have aid on a different basis in, in some sports. Uh, that, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I just think it might have some merit for institutions to keep a lot of our sports alive rather than just dropping them. There, there may be some concept uh, that could be worked out. Along that. Uh, all right, Elson, Val, and then John. <laughs> Great. Um, thank all three of you for your very stimulating and thought-provoking comments. Um, we really appreciated it. Gina's question is to you. You talked a lot about strong presidential leadership. 
How is that exemplified? Well, if you, you need your athletic director and, and president to be on the same page about what they want to achieve and then have consistent, open communication. And uh, I'm blessed everywhere I've been. I've, been <clears throat> I've asked for and received quantifiable goals and objectives every year because I want to know exactly what I'm held accountable for. And ultimately, I can lead the program in that, in that way. It, it amazes me, and it, I have not experienced a situation where one of my presidents didn't feel like every dollar that came in through intercollegiate athletics was institutional dollars, whether it came from TV contract or a booster. Every president I had stood tall with me in the face of boosters to help understand if you make this contribution, it's a contribution, you're getting gift credit, and at the end of the day, we run our program. So in, in my view, um, this, is, this is where the challenge exists in some institutions. Uh, they have not been able to put boosters at arm's length. And <clears throat> so I struggle a lot with those presidents who are in those situations because at the end of the day, they are in control and their athletic directors need to help them control those entities or those forces uh, that make it difficult for him or her to make institutional decisions about their athletic programs. Uh, we have a lot of young ADs out there right now, and I'm blessed to work with many of them. Ted tutored me. So at the end of the day, uh, your athletic director needs to help you with those issues. So, and there's a lot of different other things uh, that I think is important in that relationship. Val? Uh, thanks, Gerald. Um, I guess this is a question for both Sed and Jean, and I'll, I'll guess I'll start with you, Sed. It relates to governance models. Y you know, you've witnessed and spoke about in your remarks the evolution of the, uh, of the NCAA's governance model. And I guess my question to you is, you know, can, can more, more be done there, or are there additional changes that you could speak to that might have the effect of, um, in a process kind of way, um, enabling solutions in some of these areas. And I guess, Gene, the related point is from where you sit and the work you do every day, are there things that could be done on this subject in the governance area structurally that would help you do your job or create, um, you know, other principles that maybe can make this an easier area for you to administer, um, both as it relates to what you do at a conference level or perhaps as it relates to how the NCAA is, is structured nationally. I guess it really goes to are there things that can be done as we continue to look at how these different organizations bring their resources to bear on this. Everybody is interested in helping, but it seems like there's no clear way, no clear structure that can enable us to work together and do this in a more efficient way. Thanks. Well, as I, as I mentioned before, Val, I, I, I would be a stronger advocate for the Division Two, Three model uh, of, of governance, where you you ha do have an opportunity to come together nationally uh, on on legislation and talk through those issues. Uh, I, I think you can accomplish that and still provide a, a strong presidential leadership that you've had in Division One. Uh, it seems to me there's a model that could be developed out of that, but. 
not throw away some of the good features that we had under the other structure where there was opportunity to uh, have communication across across the country know what other parts of the country are are thinking and talking about right now that's all filtered basically from conference to conference rather than the opportunity to hear what someone on the east coast wants to do i think that was one of the real values of bringing people together uh, in division one we don't have I, I bet there's a very small percentage of athletic directors that attend the ncaa national convention any longer and that's where they they feel disengaged if you will from the association and i don't think you can have a, a really effective association unless people feel ownership in that association and i think we've lost that so I, I think there is is value in the one school one vote value but that gets back to what's best for the whole uh, and if you're going to have the same model of uh, that we currently have uh, uh, even then, I think that that ought to be readjusted so that there's uh, equal voting between equity and non-equity programs. Uh, and to me, when, Cliff, you raised a question about what can be done, it seems to me the Knight Commission can look at, at structure as to whether or not it is the most effective approach to um, uh, accomplishing what the basic philosophy is. Now, I may, you may disagree with me on my philosophy. Self-interest may be, be the uh, f prevailing philosophy, and then, then the, the structure uh, should be designed to, to accommodate that, which basically that's what, where we are right now. Okay. Gene, did you want to make a comment on that? Well, I just we'll agree with said. I, I'll reiterate. I think, um, you know, Miles had come up with a strategy in the Board of Directors through task forces, and task forces who actually had individuals on it who truly understood the issue that they were charged to deal with. In our governance structure, uh, we have so many criteria to make sure that we're inclusive, that at the end of the day, you may have half the room that's never had any experience in dealing with certain issues because of the criteria of inclusiveness that we decided to have. These issues need to be dealt with people who understand the bottom line of what we're dealing with and who can, who can affect change. I'll give you one example and, and move on. Dutch Bachman is going to present to you today a recommendation on looking at the non-traditional season. So soccer plays in the fall, their championship is in the fall. Then as soon as those young people get back on campus, they go into a strength and conditioning program. And in some cases, at 6 a.m., they're doing a strength and conditioning program with a trainer, all the costs associated with that. Then they go into a, a four-contest non-traditional season against teams they, they don't even see in the regular season, and the games don't count. So we pay for all that, okay? In my view, that needs to change. To okay. affect change through the normal NCA system would probably take us two years. A task force appointed by the board of directors with a charge to look at these issues in X number of months and come back with recommendations can be put in front of the conferences in the spring, talked about, massage, edited, and at the end of the day, implemented in August of 2010. Okay, we've got, uh, we're about to wrap up. We've got two more questions, uh, John DiBiagio and then Tom McMillan, and we'll wrap it up. You've had the unique experience of being at you know, Ohio State, but you were once at Eastern Michigan. Yeah, and I missed you. <laughs> you remember those conversations. <laughs> well, you know, there was a time when it was Michigan State Normal College. That's right. It could play the University of Michigan. In fact, defeated them, as I recall, in the early 30s. 
Uh oh. <laughs> I was a graduate of Michigan, but the fact is that you know that can no longer occur. I mean, it happens. I mean, for God's right. sake, Central just beat you know Michigan State. I'm sad to say. But the fact of the matter is that with the dichotomy of resources now, I mean, the possibility of that is, is really limited. Right. I mean, the kinds of monies available to Ohio State or Michigan compared to some of these other institutions is, is, is quite dramatic. I, I wonder, Gene, can we ever overcome that? Because quite frankly, you know, you're never going to have a stadium at Eastern like you have at, in Ann Arbor. Or the other facilities. I, I recall we built a football practice field at Michigan State because Michigan had one. Yeah. So Michigan built a larger one yeah. and forfeited the one that it had in place. What do we do about that? I mean, that is an issue that is simply impossible, really, to, to totally overcome. Occasionally, you know, a, a smaller school, Central, will beat Michigan State, but that's really unusual. Yeah, that's going to be the rarity. You know, I really don't have a good answer for you. At the end of the day, uh, the competitive desires uh, forced all of us into the arms race. And it was facility, it's, in, it's beyond personnel now because people think it's in personnel. Personnel, for the last 15 years, we've been in an arms race. Uh, so I really don't have an answer to that. I, I think that um, at the end of the day, again, those decisions are local. Uh, Eastern Michigan University, where I was blessed to work for John Porter, we understood that our mission was to beat Bowling Green and Toledo and not Michigan State and Michigan. Yeah. And a lot of places do not define that for themselves. And they try and compete in arenas that they should not compete in. The 39 schools that came into Division I since 1991 are our lowest funded schools. And at the end of the day, they're not making the investment in the academic support structures for their student athletes because they made, a, in my view, a bad decision. There's some schools, frankly, should be Division II. That's reality. And so, you know, again, those, those decisions are local, and people get trapped into trying to compete at a level that's not realistic for them, and they ultimately make those investments. So I don't know what the answer is to that one. Okay, Tom, last question. Thank you. Um, a comment and a question. I guess this Great Recession might have been a wake-up call for some Americans that, you know, why we're focusing on how much we're paying our football coaches. You know, the Chinese universities are focusing on the kinds of scientists and engineers they're producing. And are we myopic here? And are we not really, really focusing on, on, on the big issues for our country? That's a comment. The question is, you know, the fundamental premise of, of basketball and football and college sports is that, you know, this is a great experience for these young men. Uh, when I say big-time basketball, big-time football, and women. But do we ever really track uh, the career paths of these students when they leave school? Do we track them over the course of 10, 20 years and see, you know, where, how their lives have fared? I mean, we know the professional athlete story is, is one story, but how about the other athletes? And should we be doing this experientially so we can really weigh whether these fundamental experiences are positive or not. I just uh, completed some work at Rice University and uh, it's the first time I've ever seen the banners in, in their gymnasium highlighted their Pulitzer Prize winners, their Nobel Prize winners, uh, and, and uh, they must have had 
very few about conference champions, but they had all these people identified. Uh, but they also had publications uh, of the success of their former athletes. I mean, it was a, it was a very remarkable kind of uh, document that they put together. And I, you know, I think most schools try to do that and need to do it more in terms of what the strengths uh, of, uh, of their experiences had in that sense. What's that? What? Yeah, I, w I would tell you that a number of schools do that yeah. statistically. Yeah. Uh, again, that comes back to resources. You know, we have on our staff uh, a coordinator of alumni relations in the athletic department. Most people don't have that. Her job is pure alumni relations. So we do track those people. We know where they are. We know where Michael Anissa, receiver in football, who was a Rhodes Scholar, we know what he's doing today. So we follow our kids and make sure that they understand that they can come back and, and receive help when they need it. Um, but we can afford to do that. Every school cannot assign within a job description the responsibility to track that. They can't. They just don't have the resources. Gerald has uh, given me permission to ask one more uh, question, which I appreciate. Uh, Gene, I want to ask this question of, of you. Um, according to the data we have, expenditures on intercollegiate athletics are rising four times faster than those on the academic programs at our institution. So my question of, of you as an athletic director, do you think you can sustain that kind of differential? I mean, it just it, when you think about the politics and the, the values, et cetera, of the institution, can you sustain a situation where your, your rate of growth of expenditures is four times the academic side? And if not, do you think there is any, would be any reason to have, think about some comparability? In other words, athletic growth shouldn't be more than what we're uh, spending or roughly comp excuse me, roughly comparable to what we're spending on intercollegiate athletics? Well, what you said, the latter, is just what it should be. Mm -hmm. uh, intercollegiate athletics should not be spending at a higher rate than the university. That's, that's ridiculous in my view. Um, now, if you're asked about, when you say you of the Ohio State University, we transfer $29 million to the institution out of our $120 million budget. So at the end of the day, if it got out of hand, I just wouldn't transfer as much. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, you will find that there's a number of schools, uh, University of Georgia, Florida, we can go around the country and there's a number of schools who have the capability to sustain, to sustain that trajectory. Is it right? No. And there's a lot of schools who cannot. And that's the ones we need to help. We need to put aside a level playing field. We need to, to look at this as a whole and come up with strategies to help the have-nots so that they can sustain their mission. Uh, so I, at the end of the, and I believe that there's ways to do that. And Dutch will present some examples. I'll, leave, I'll give one example. I keep stealing your thunder, Dutch, I'm sorry. I'm a football man. I'm born out of football. I believe that there's cuts in football that can be made. Now my football coaches in the AFC will probably shoot me when I walk back in the room. Uh, Chris, you'll know this. At the end of the day, I don't understand why we have preseason practice so long. At the end of the day, I don't know why we have so many people coaching football. I don't understand it. Uh, so there's a number of things that when, when you know, the rubber hits the road, that if the presidents are strong and we're, both, we're blessed to have athletic directors in the room who are strong, 
uh, to fight the coaches associations and fight all the other interest groups uh, and help us push through some legislation, uh, I think you'll have significant financial change for the have-nots. Thank you very right. much. Uh, Amy tells me that the NCAA is doing a longitudinal study. Yeah, just to, just to run to Tom's question, the NCAA has a, has a longitudinal study that tracks athletes, and it's uh, called GOALS. Uh, I don't know the official long name, but the acronym is GOALS, and I know that they're updating that, and we'll get some information to you about that. All right, thank uh, our speakers for this occasion, and uh, we'll see you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information on the Knight Commission and to access its new website, College Sports 101, a primer on money, athletics, and higher education in the 21st century, visit www.knightcommission.org.